Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. It brave the, uh, you know, welcome to late fall weather. Um, don't worry, it'll be like this for a while, right? So get used to it. It's nice. Like, you gotta love the change in seasons. I mean, I try to love it, um, you know, and uh, we are changing too. We are finishing our Hebrew studies. Yes, like it's been 13 weeks we've been in Hebrews and uh, we're wrapping that up. And so um, excited about that. The other thing you can be excited about too is that I will probably not be preaching much in the month of December. Yay for you guys. So yeah, there's people clapping in the back, cheering on. Um, some of our other folks are going to be up preaching. I'm excited about that. Always love to hear from other people. It's great to study. It's great to do it. But I also love uh, to listen and learn. And so I'm excited about that. And then on December 12th, not only will we be celebrating communion, but that day is going to be a special day. I encourage you to be here. We're going to have an open sharing time. And uh, we're going to allow people to share what God's done in their year. We're going to look back over the year that Sunday uh, and kind of talk about next year in 2022, look at our budget. And so I would encourage you to be here that Sunday if at all possible. Um, I think it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. And we won't have a normal sermon that Sunday. It'll be shortened. It'll be a sharing time. And we really want to spend time hearing what God's done and really thinking back through what God's done over the last year, 2021, which has been a crazy year. But as I was writing stuff down, I was kind of amazed at what God had done and continues to do in our body and in our church. And so we want to celebrate that. Our Hebrew study, if you remember, we've been through this book for the last 13 weeks. Three weeks ago, the author made a transition for about 10 and a half chapters. The author of Hebrews, God has the author of Hebrews write about the person and character of who God is. He has him write about men, the Hebrews that he's writing to. These Hebrews, again, were people that had grown up Jewish. They were Israelites, and they had decided that Christ was their Messiah, the true Messiah. They weren't waiting anymore. And because of that decision, it was causing persecution. Their families hated them. They were ostracized. They were, they were running for their lives, some of them. It was a bad deal. They were being shut out from jobs. They were being shut out from opportunities because they proclaimed that Jesus really was the God of the universe and the Savior that was to come and promised in the Old Testament. For the first ten and a half chapters, the writer of Hebrews is laying that case out as clearly as he can using the Old Testament scriptures, using Jesus' life and the Gospels, and he's laying that out clearly. And then in chapter ten and a half... He transitions into being very practical, and he gets more and more practical. And this week is the most practical message of the Hebrews book, chapter 13. But he started, and he said, hey, let us. And he said, be sure and remember to let us lay aside everything, like Mike shared in his testimony, to lay aside those things, our flesh, those things that, that are keeping us from pursuing him. We're to run with endurance, what God, or we're to hold on, I mean, to what God has for us, which is the grace that he's provided. We're to be concerned for others. Then he goes on and he says, the only way you're going to be able to do this is by faith. And we looked at the fact and the author lays out the case for what faith really is. It's not what we think it is or our world says it is, which is this kind of crazy belief in a flying spaghetti monster. That is not faith. Faith is evidence. It's the, it's the evidence. It's of, of what's hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And we talked about how every day we live by faith, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And we talked about all the people before us that live their lives by faith, that God is still rewarding in heaven to this day because of their faithfulness. And we looked at that. And then last week, we looked again at let us part two. He goes into some more, let us do these things. And he says, let us draw near. Or he says, I'm sorry. He goes on and he says, let us lay aside. Let us run with endurance. Let us hold on to grace. He repeats himself again because it's the grace of God, not our works, that puts us in a relationship with him. Now this week, as we're thinking about letting us really consider who Jesus is, and really trusting him by faith to surrender our lives as we're moving into Thanksgiving season, giving thanks. Christmas season that remembers what the world is really about, that there was a Messiah who came. As we think about all the things that God says, hey, let us together. You're not alone. You're, you're not by yourself. You have a body of people, a cloud of witnesses. He says this finally to us, I will not be afraid. That couldn't be a more crazy statement today than it ever probably has been in a long time. Maybe not since back in 
World War I, World War II, or the Cold War. But this idea that I will not be afraid. We are living in a world that is constantly using fear as a manipulation tool. It's constant. I mean, I've said this before, but when you watch commercials on TV, do you ever start thinking to yourself after about the fourth or fifth drug commercial that you may have that, and you like look up what the heck is this drug, and then you look at the symptoms and you're like, oh my gosh, I might be dying, right? They're constantly trying to make us afraid so that we respond. Because fear is a great response mechanism, right? Fight or flight syndrome. We've proven that that's what happens. It's, it's fight or flight. We either run from it or we, or we fight it. And how we decide to do that is essential. Oh, and by the way, God says fight or flight syndrome was something he asked us to do. He asked us to endure with him and run from sin. To be, to be fearful of, of what's really killing us, not all the stuff the world portrays is really killing us. And he says, therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Well, I don't know about you, but man can do a lot to me. <laughs> At least I think so. You, you think so too. Like, you can go to work on Monday and then you're fired. Wow. A lot just happened to me. A lot just happened to my bank account. A lot just happened to my life because I don't have an income now. And we can begin to have all these fears and God through Hebrews is trying to lay out to these Hebrew people who God has said for thousands of years in the Old Testament, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Remember, do not be afraid. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, they went through mess after mess of real fear, like Children being slaughtered. We're getting ready to go into the Christmas season and people forget the fact that the birth of Jesus brought the death of all two-year-olds that had ever been born at that time who were Hebrew in Bethlehem. Jesus' own family members murdered. That Joseph and Mary were called to be afraid and to flee and not be able to warn anyone. And then they had to return to their family and they had the only two-year-old left. They had the only child left because all their relatives' children died that day. And they had to live with that decision and not be afraid and be able to face their families and be able to move back and still be able to claim that their son was the Messiah in the face of such great tragedy and disaster that their son caused is what everyone would have thought. Of course, we know it was the enemy who caused it, not Jesus. And so today, I want you to consider, what is it that you're afraid of? Is it you're afraid you won't have the right job? Is it afraid you won't graduate college? Is it afraid you'll be alone and not married and not have kids? Is it afraid your kids will go off? And What, what fears do you carry? Because we all carry them. And I'm telling you, the writer of Hebrews is trying to get his audience to see, look, I've laid out the case for who Jesus is. I've told you all these things, but you have got to know that you cannot live in fear. You have to live by faith in God and understand that you can boldly say, even if it's a mess in your life, I know the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man really do to me? Because he doesn't have control over my soul and over my eternal destiny. And by the way, we're supposed to be the ones taking that message to the world and most Christians have forgotten it. We get caught up in the worry and the fear. I do it too, just like everybody else does. And there's a dying world saying, is there anybody that really can make sense of this mess to me? And that's where we find ourselves. And by the way, the author gets very personal and offensive in this section. (laughs) He gets down to the nitty gritty. So let's dive in. The end of chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. Let's pause for a minute. Do you believe that we're actually receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken? That as the United States is being shaken right now at its core, other nations around the world are being shaken right now at its core, that you kind of pause, are you able to pause for a minute and think, you know what, there's a kingdom that that none of this matters. 
That as all this gets shaken up, I've got a confidence and I'm holding on to this grace that Jesus came from heaven to earth to lay down his life, to pay the penalty that I deserved so that I can experience not the judgment of God and the wrath of God. So I'm not trying to work to please God, but he actually just told me, I love you and I'm committed to making sure you know what it looks like to love me back. It's exactly what we're supposed to be. And he says, by it, By understanding that you've received a kingdom and you hold on to grace, not hold on to the things of this world, by it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so he gets ready in chapter 13 to show us what acceptably holding on to grace and living for the kingdom looks like. And he gets very specific. The first thing he says is let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love. That means believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't look to use one another. Look to give yourself to one another as family. That there is a heavenly father and you're not it. And I'm not it. (laughs) Right? At best, we're children and children are under authority. And he reminds us of that. And he says, let brotherly love continue. What kind of love? The Bible spells out what kind of love, and he gets into some specifics here. But we've so messed up the word love today. It is very loving to warn people. It is very loving to look at your brother and say, no, I won't burn the house down with you. Mom and dad would be upset, and I like having stuff. Let's not play with matches. But I want to. If you do it, I'm going to go tell mom and dad, because I like my bedroom, and I live in here with you. Well, I don't want to judge my brother. Just play with matches. I'll be, up, I'll be fine in my top bunk as you're playing with matches in the lower bunk and I'm going to ignore it. And that's what we do in the world. As Christians, we go through and we think, well, I don't want to judge. I don't want to warn anybody. I don't want to tattle on anybody. I don't want to do any of that. And literally the fire's underneath you in the bunk below by brother. If you love the family, you'll do this. And it says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Hospitality is not like letting anyone come into your home. Right now, we live in a nation that thinks that we can just let people go into grocery stores and if they're hungry, steal stuff and walk out and we can't do anything about it. Those same people would never let that person walk into their home and take stuff out of their fridge and walk out. But if it's your business and your life, well, you just have to deal with it because it's not happening to me. And he says we should show hospitality to the brethren, to one another, to believers. Does that mean we're not hospitable to lost people? No, it just means we need to be more careful. Then he goes on and he says, by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Do you know that was in the Bible? Did you know that God sends angels and tests people and sends them to earth? Did you not know that when you invite the right people into your home, like when Elijah was invited and that they carry with them protection of God and sometimes that's angelic hosts? I know, it's so hard to believe in an unseen world like germs. I just can't believe in germs because I can't see them every day. I don't know, I just can't see them. Don't believe in them. Don't believe they exist. Well, but Matt, you could see it on a microscope. If you really examine, if we come up with more equipment, yeah, I get it. Just like the more we examine the universe, we discover that there has to be a creator. Someone has to be tinkering with all this because it can't just all happen. It's so complicated. And yet we just turn a blind eye and he's saying, look, do you understand that if you have a kingdom, if you understand that you have grace, if you understand who you really are in Christ, what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid of your brother and sister in Christ? Because you're trying to use them? Why are you afraid of people? What if, what if they kill you? Yay, you get to go to heaven now. Thank you. <laughs> I get out, you're still here. Too bad for you. We live in such fear and everybody constantly is building on top of it. Be safe. Be careful. When was the last time you looked at someone leaving your house and was like, man, give him Jesus, go for it, right? Honor the Lord today, see what he'll do. No, so be careful, be safe. 
it's, it's not wrong to say be careful and be safe, but my goodness gracious, we're the safest culture that ever lived. Literally. Can you imagine having this kind of health care 100 years ago? I mean, it's crazy, and yet we still are scared to death. He goes on, and he says to do this, and he says that there's an unseen world. He goes on, and after he says, hey, show hospitality. So let me ask you, how are you on your hospitality? You wait other people to be hospitable to you? I mean, I'm afraid of what they'll think. I'm afraid of what they'll say if I say hello, and I don't, I don't know what will happen. Yep, you don't. You have no idea. Jesus knew exactly what would happen, and he left heaven to come to earth to be hospitable to us. He knew we'd kill him. Maybe take a chance like he did, and be hospitable, and say hi to someone. And I know that takes a lot more faith for some of you than others. I get it, right? But as I've said before, quiet and introverted people are the best evangelists on the face of the planet, in my opinion. Because I can talk to a tree for an hour, okay? And have nothing important to say. If an introvert opens their mouth to take that incredible step of faith to talk to another human being, it's because they've probably been praying for an hour before they spoke. (laughs) And God is like, I honor faith. Matt doesn't have faith. He just speaks a lot. You have faith. I'm going to honor you. Like it, it's stepping out to say, I want to be hospitable. I want, hello, how are you? What's your name? All those things are what we should be doing as believers. And instead, the world has us panicked. And what are they going to think? Because we have masks on. We're supposed to be at six feet. And I don't know what to do. And ah! If they die tomorrow, it doesn't matter that you saved them from COVID. If they don't know Jesus, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And that should break our hearts. Now, does that mean we just walk around miserable all day? No, we're walking around rejoicing, which we'll see in a minute. He goes on to say this. Show hospitality. He says, remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily harm. We love pity. We don't care much for empathy. To really suffer with people To really think through. When he says the prisoners, he's not talking about prisoners that did wicked things and are sitting in jail. Okay? When he's talking about the brethren, which we just read, and he says the prisoners, he's talking about people that are sitting in jail because they did the right thing. We just had a trial where we're trying to figure that out. Or did we not? And you can be on whichever side of the political aisle or argument you want to be with what happened in that trial. I get it. But that trial exposed that we don't know how to protect one another and we don't know how to do life in our culture. We are messed up. And we need help. And he says, you've got to remember those that are in prison for trying to do the right thing. They tried to share Jesus. They were trying to walk in their faith and now they're in prison. Don't stay away from them because you're afraid the FBI is watching you. Don't stay away from them because, well, what did my wife think? What, what? No, you are to actually go to those that are suffering. Well, but if I go, then I might bring some disease back with me. Yeah, you might. That's what Christians did for, I don't know, 2,000, about 1,900 years before we figured out germ theory. Like, we're, we're, to, we're to take this on, and we've got so many people that are just running from church to church, relationship to relationship, and the second that suffering pops up, the second that it's like hard, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm going to the next one, the next one, and the next one. And then we wonder why, and they wonder why they're miserable. Because they've never learned how to believe that there's another kingdom. They've never learned how to, be, to, to not be afraid. They're constantly in their fear running from the next thing to the next thing because they don't want to deal with what's inside here. They don't want to allow the grace of God to wash over their mistakes and their failures that they'll keep making and allow him to change them and to become someone different. A couple of things to help you remember the prisoners. There's a group called Operation World that has a free website you can go to. Operation World gives you details of those that are being persecuted around the world for Christ. There are over 340 million Christians right now living in places where they experience incredibly high levels of persecution and discrimination for claiming Jesus. 
That's the entire United States population. 340 million people living just like the Hebrews were living when, when this book was written in complete oppression and discrimination. And if they claim the name of Christ, if they say the name of Jesus, they are done. In 2021, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. That's the only the ones we know about. 5,000 of your brothers and sisters slaughtered almost. Just because they couldn't not believe there was another kingdom and there was something better than this world. And they wouldn't compromise. There were almost 4,500 churches and church buildings attacked and destroyed in 2021. Those are our brothers and sisters. There were almost 4,300 believers detained without trial, arrested and sentenced and imprisoned, all without trial. Again, those are only the numbers we know about. There is great suffering in the world to make Christ known. We live in the freest country to make Christ known that you could live in, and we're still scared to death to do it? Why? Operation World will help you see those. They'll give you stories and persecution and they'll send you an everyday reminder of what country to play for, which brothers and sisters to pray for. I encourage you to look at it. Another resource is the IMB prayer guide that we told you guys about this week. That we have missionaries that are going to the hardest places in the world to reach. They're going there as business people. They're going there and they're giving their lives and they're taking their families and they're risking their lives. This week we met with Javi who is in charge of the Ecuador missions projects that we've been doing, that partners with indigenous local churches in Ecuador that we've sent teams to. And we got to hear his stories of what God is doing in Ecuador and how he's changing lives. And how there's persecution there because the Catholic Church is in charge of so much. And it may not be physical persecution, but it's definitely discrimination and persecution. Guys, Our brothers and sisters around the world are not afraid. Why are you? Probably because you're trying to hold on to a kingdom here, a life you want here, a comfort and security you want here, instead of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that option. He goes on and says this, marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. He talks about the brethren. He talks about this idea of the prisoners. And then he goes right into that next authority relationship. And he says, hey, marriage. Can I just tell you that there's probably no other topic that breaks my heart more in our culture today, especially Christian culture, than this one. I am weary of fighting for biblical marriage. And I don't mean with the lost world. I don't mean trying to get some law passed for the Supreme Court that, you know, certain people can't be married. Nope, not even talking about that. Because those people are lost and don't know any better. I'm talking about people in the church. That don't understand that God has a bride, you and I, and his church, that is a disaster. How great of a bride do you think you are for Jesus? I wake, some days, wake up some days and look at him and go, you still want me today? And yet he continues to give his life. He continues to fight. When people divorce him and leave him and I'm done with you, he continues to offer himself. He doesn't come back and say, I'm done with all of you. And he doesn't just kill him on the spot because he's done with us. He gives us time after time to repent and come back to him. We're a weird church because we try to teach what God says about marriage. Because you want to know what he says about marriage? In his first sermon, he covers it. If you look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he covers adultery, divorce, and what it means to be a servant. And he sums it up with this very phrase. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. That's Satan himself. You look at people that are looking at leaving relationships and give them that verse, they do not like you very well and they don't consider it very loving. Are there extenuating circumstances? Someone's threatened for their life. Real, true abuse. Yes. 
Are there extenuating circumstances? Someone's bringing drugs in the home and your kids are stumbling on it. Yes, there are extenuating circumstances, but it's amazing to me that people's first option is never, I'm gonna hold on to my yes before God and trust that God can change the human heart. It's I'm out of here so I can have what I want. Because I deserve it, I'm entitled to it, and I didn't marry this person for that, and so take that. And Jesus in heaven has to be scratching his head going, I created people knowing All of those things were going to happen to me, and I'm still committed to you all trying to get your attention to get you to change. And then when people do walk away, and when it is a hard situation and divorce does happen, what's amazing to me is they don't recognize that, wow, I was controlled by the evil one before And I need to repent of that. I need to repent to the other person I left and apologize to them for following the evil one, even though they were following the evil one too when we got together. But I need to at least let them know that there's a yes and a yes and a no and a no before God. And so, hey, I am sorry that this has to happen. I was evil at heart. You were evil at heart. But I have repented from this. And I want to stay with you, but you don't want to stay with me. And so I understand that. And the Bible gives leeway for that. And so so I'm just praying for you that you'll see that there is repentance available that God loves you and you can make your yes, yes, and your no, no. You know how many people I've gotten to do that in failed marriages? Zero. That they'll go back and own their part in it, however small it was, not so they feel guilty, not just because you're trying to manipulate and win the person back, just because you understand that marriage is a temporary kingdom and there's an eternal kingdom and you want to be right with the eternal kingdom. Can I tell you, there are very few churches you'll find that'll have that conversation with people because we love them and we're concerned for their soul. That's why we do it. I don't want you to be controlled by the evil one. I don't want you to have to live with the mess and the fallout. I want you to surrender. And if it's not to that, eventually you're going to come up to it. And if you think it's going to get better, it won't. Ask any kid that's been divorced. I have never met a kid that's been through a divorce situation say, I am just so happy my parents couldn't be committed together. And Like, I haven't found one. They might, like, walk themselves through, well, they did fight a lot and everything else, but they'll always come back to, man, I, I wish. You want to know why? Because at the core of almost all of those kids, and psychologists will tell you this, at the core of their heart, they're looking and saying, if they'll leave each other, they'll leave me. And then when they come to know Jesus, they struggle with the fact that, well, if mom and dad will leave each other and I left mom and dad and didn't obey them, will God leave me? It's so destructive. And so the writer of Hebrews is like, look, I, I, I get it. You've become a Christian, Mr. Hebrew, and your wife hasn't. That's what he's writing about. And your wife is turning you into the authorities. That's why we just talked about the prisoners before this. And I am telling you to still love her, to still give your life, because that's what Jesus does. That's what it means to honor marriage, that it is the one picture where God says, this is, this is the relationship that's going to look the most like what my relationship with people should be like. Is there forgiveness if you mess up? Yes. You repent. <laughs> does it mean everything goes back to normal is fixed? No, because you have a free will and so does the other person. And God's grace is what we hold on to, not, well, I'm so married and so awesome and I've stayed married and that's what I've done and I'm just so mad at all those people that didn't stay married. Man, that is bitterness. And that is self-righteousness. And do not go there. He goes on and he says this, your life should be free from the love of money. What, what are the two biggest causes of divorce that we've been able to study over the last 75 years? Because, of course, we didn't know anything about psychology until Freud came along, and we didn't know anything about how we divorced and did wrong things. Like, God should have written it down for us. Um, what, what are the two things that lead to the most divorce in our culture and the most hatred in relationships? Money and adultery. Cheating. About 2,000 years ago, there was this dude who was called to write a book to let us know that money and adultery was going to cost you your marriage. 
problems. I, Freud didn't, wasn't born yet. He says, be free from the love of money. He's not saying be free from money. You need money, right? As a pastor friend of mine said, I don't need money. It's just wherever I go, people want it, so I have to use it, right? I could do without it. It's everybody else that wants it. And he says, be free from the love of it. And are you ready for this? Be free from the love of what you think money will get you. Let me say that again. Be free, be free from the love of what you think money will get you because it won't. In the end, you'll die and leave everything else behind. Be, be free from loving that goal, that picture, that, oh, if I just get to here, if I just have this, if I just buy this, then I'll feel better. That is every marketing commercial in our country. Don't buy the lie. And he goes on and he says, be satisfied with what you have. Oh, yeah, right. Good luck with that one, right? That's hard. The only way I get this help is if I have someone in my home who helps me, like my wife. My wife looks at the credit card and she says, Matt, there's a purchase from Target on here for $21 and some cents. She said this to me two days ago. What's that? Where did that come from? Uh, there's, a, there's a charge there, Matt. What's that from? And I was like, I don't know. I, that's like three weeks ago. I don't know. She's like, well, you need to look it up and figure it out. Just leave me alone. It's $21. No, I want to be sure like we didn't get wrongly charged. Like, like I haven't been to Target. I, don't, I never get to that side of town, but you went to Target. Like, why did I go to Target? Well, then I look it up and I'm like feeling so justified because I'm like, I went to Target so I could buy supplies for your daughter's baby shower. I mean, our daughter's baby shower, right? Like, I needed money. I went and spent it, and I got to bless a bunch of people that came to celebrate my grandchild. Praise the Lord. And I have a wife who is challenging me, not because she's like, you better tell me or I'm leaving tomorrow. I can't stand this house. And no, that's not it. She's challenging me because she's like, I, we need to know where our money goes. We need to be good stewards. What were you not satisfied with that you had to run to Target and buy? Oh, okay, well, then we're good. You're right. That was the day. Great. And then moved on. It was fine. Most of the time, it's like we can't stand to be challenged with how we do our money. Don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to invite the body of Christ in to tell me what to do. No, no, no. I got this figured out. I don't tell you what to do. You don't tell me what to do. That's the game we play. That is so destructive. It's why as a church, we try to model financial accountability and stewardship on a very high level because we know it's one of the top reasons why people leave relationships. And then when they find out we actually do that, guess what? They leave because they don't want to be held accountable in their finances. <laughs> this is what Jesus said. Or I'm sorry, this is what Psalm 118 because... Uh, that's what's being quoted here is Psalm 118 because he goes on. Sorry, I wasn't ready for that. My bad. He says this. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Interesting that Jesus uses this verse from Psalm 118 in the context of money. See, these Hebrews are being persecuted. They were having a problem having a livelihood because they were being cut off from jobs because the Romans didn't want to hire Jews and now the Jews don't want to hire you. And you can't make a living and you feel like a loser and you have to come before the church and I've got nothing, I don't know what to do, I'm struggling, help me. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, if you truly live satisfied with God, if you truly live not loving money, but actually loving what you can do with money to bless others and to be a blessing and to serve the body of Christ, if that's your heart, then you can boldly say, the Lord is your helper, I'm going to help you. You don't need to be afraid because you've got a family. You've got a friend in me, right? It's not just Buzz and Woody. And I'll, I'll help you. But I'm also going to challenge you. Why'd you go to Target? Because if I'm handing you 20 bucks, I don't want to hand you 20 bucks and you just go to Target and buy snacks. No. He goes on and he says, what can man do to me? Do you really believe that, he says. Psalm 118 says this. This is perfect for us. Read this psalm this week. That's an assignment. Read Psalm 118. It is a giving thanks psalm. This is thanksgiving. Good idea. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
Not all the things of this world are good. Not everything else is good. He is good, and what comes from him is good. His faithful love endures forever. By the way, that phrase is listed in this psalm like dozens of times. And he goes on, he says, let the house of Aaron, that's the priesthood that the writer of Hebrews talked about in the first part of Hebrews, say, his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of, or let those who fear the Lord say, his faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in my distress and the Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. See, the Lord is near me. He has drawn near to me and I draw near to him. That's, this is the writer of Hebrews. is like this psalm. This is why he's using this psalm is because it's everything he's been writing. And then he says, look at this. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And I wish that were true for Christians today. But so often, we are looking to trust in that next relationship. If I just go to the right college, and I get the right degree, and I get the right wife, and I have the right job, and I, man, 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 man. And God is like, just follow me. Just trust me. Susan was reminding me last night, She's like, Matt, have you ever thought about how you've really never had a stable job? It's really not encouraging as a husband when you're sitting there having like, no, I hadn't. Thank you. I, I feel so much, so much better about myself and how I've provided for you as a husband. That's wonderful. She's like, no, really? Like, like it's always been, we're going to follow the Lord and trust him and submit ourselves to the church. And like, like every time we get some stability, God challenges us. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, I never really thought about it. She's like, and God has provided every time. And we've got to see him provide like other people never get to see because they never put themselves in the situations that we've allowed ourselves to be put in by God. And I'm like, I really want to be encouraged by that. But I'm not. <laughs> like, I did. It's like, ah. Like, it's so beautiful if you live this out that you just give thanks. It's a great reminder for us as we move into Thanksgiving and everybody's panicked and families are divided and families are telling family members not even to come into their home because you're not vaccinated or you're not got a booster or whatever it is. What are we doing? I'm not saying be stupid. I'm not saying go in if you've got a fever and a cough and sit next to grandma and cut her in the, cuddle in her lap. Don't do that. The Bible has rules about how you're supposed to, you know, act sick. You're to go outside the camp and be inspected by someone to come back in. Oh, no. You mean the Bible actually says to do that? Yes. It wasn't Fauci who came up with that. Goes on and it says this. 1 John 4, 15. 1 John writes, For whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he is in God. Have you confessed like Mike did? That Jesus is the Son of God, that He is your Savior? That He remains in you. And you remain in Him. You can't be snatched away, the Bible says. And we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in Him. And that's God's version of love, not ours. His version of love that says, this is how you love people, not how you want, but how I've said they should be loved. Then he goes on, look at this. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are his in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. The definition of love is looking at him and saying, what did he do? Oh, he left what was great to go to people who didn't have it great. To, and they killed him and crucified him. And he came back to life and said, you can't kill me. And I'm still committed to you. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. That's what Jesus did. And then he says, now I've left you here to be that example to others. Uh, I'm looking for my best life now. And we buy that stuff. And God says, if you truly understand love, 
You'll understand what it means to say, God, I'm yours. I surrender and I give myself to you. He goes on to say this. So he talks about marriage. Now he goes on and he says, remember your leaders, those who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. It doesn't say imitate their stupidity. Please do not imitate my stupidity. I have told my children that numerous times. Here's some great things I taught you. Here's stupid. Don't do stupid. I still struggle with stupid. Here's all the areas. Mike said it. Here's the things I struggle with. I've laid that out for my kids. I hope that you get past that. Miles. Micaiah posted a post. You can look on there. Miles McGuire. My son-in-law posted about him this week and put this post. It was like this beautiful post about all these things Miles was. And my only response was, you married someone nothing like me. That's great. I'm happy. He's so much better than I am. Praise God. Because I was not nearly as walking with God as he is at his age. And I am thankful that my grandchildren are going into that house, my first grandchild. Praise God. But the reason that Miles and Micaiah have grown in their faith is because they've been responsive to their leaders. His dad, me, moms, other adults, churches, they're surrendered to serving the church. Because they've done that, God is growing them. And it's amazing to watch. So remember and look at those things where they have faith and say, I want to have that kind of faith, not Well, I want all they do. I want to do all the stupid they do. No, don't do that part. Push that aside and say, yeah, that's off limits. But they're still called to be the leader and I'm going to imitate that part. When the pandemic broke out, I actually wrote a letter to Mayor Hamilton telling him I was praying for him and grateful that he was trying his best to take precautions and reminded him about the Old Testament in Leviticus, how sick people were separated. How many pastors do you think wrote a note like that to the mayor? who I don't agree with much of anything he does, to be honest. We are on completely different platforms. Because he's, our, he's my leader. He's the leader of our community. I, I want him to know I'm praying for him. And I want him to know the Bible's dealt with this before. And I hope you read it. He goes on and he says, be sure you observe it. And here's why. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God isn't changing. He doesn't let his yes be maybe and his no be yes. And God is the same always. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if your leaders are leading you to that God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he isn't changing back and forth. And oh, I have a new word from God. Anybody tells you they have a new word from God, run for your life. If they have a new word from God, that means they have Scripture. And they need to write it down. They may have discovered something in the scriptures about God. Praise the Lord. That's not new. You found it in the book. It's not a new word. It's been there for thousands of years. You just stumbled your big toe into it. Right? Like, like be very careful that you don't... Look at what Timothy says. Proclaim the message, Paul writes to Timothy. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke correct and encourage with great patience and teaching for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires they will multiply leaders teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new we're constantly looking for something new some new word instead of saying man i just want to live in the truth that jesus is the same yesterday today and forever and i don't need to be afraid of anything i don't need to go out and buy the next book that's going to fix my life i don't need to do that i just need to lean into him and lean into his body and let them help me walk through this life because that's what people have been doing for thousands of years and god the enemy has got us right now God's like, just do simple. Wisdom is boring. Until you get to the end, and then it's incredibly exciting to watch a son-in-law who's walking with Jesus and a daughter who's walking with Jesus and to see them serving the church. And to see, It's like, oh, man, it was worth it. Really boring. As we were good. But man, was it worth it. And then as I see people go out from our church and they're serving and they're not afraid or they stay and serve instead of running and going someplace to chase some dream, they're like, nope, I'm just going to stay and serve. I'm like, that is amazing to me. 
That just, that, this just like melts my heart. That's what he says to do. You are to evaluate your leaders and look at how they have faith and imitate that. And if they're not having faith, guess what? You get to challenge your leaders. You get to come and say, hey, I'm really struggling with you not really trusting God in this area of your life. Wow. Thanks for, let me pray about that. I, you may be right. That's how the church is supposed to work. That's what the church in Acts look like. He goes on and says this in Hebrews, do not be led astray by various kinds of strange teach, teachings. For it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. In other words, he says, look, you're being led astray with all these new teachings, all these new things that we just read about in Timothy. That's why the author of Hebrews is going through this process. And he says, don't be led astray. Don't be afraid. Don't be like, oh, I may be eating the wrong food and disobeying God. No, you may be eating the wrong food and getting fat. That's a whole different story than eating the wrong food and you're going to hell, Right? You can look at food and, and make an evaluation, but he's saying, look, don't let people, you know, kind of tug you around with all this stuff. Don't be afraid. Don't just go to whatever. But he, look what he says. For it is good for the heart to be established by what? Grace. Don't be established by your works and how righteous you are. Don't be established by how you've got everything. Be established by how desperate you are for grace. Because if you understand how desperate you are for grace, it will influence how you do all the relationships, the brothers, the marriages, all those things will be radically transformed. How you respond to leadership will be radically transformed if you understand that you've been given grace and you deserve nothing. It changes you. In our culture today, we believe in moral therapeutic deism. It's the idea that I want a God that just helps me be a better person, helps me feel better, and kind of stays at a distance so I can live the life I want to live. And I got heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for punching my ticket. But you know what? I'm going to figure out how to do life on my own and do my own morals. And your job is to make me feel good about whatever I decide, right? Because I'm going to heaven. And then one day when I get to you, no judgment, I'm just going to get there and be like, hey, thanks for letting me in because I'm so awesome. That is the opposite of the gospel. It is not the gospel. It is a false gospel. Does God help you be moral? Absolutely, and it's typically hard. Does he help you feel better? Absolutely, and it's typically hard, and it requires other people encouraging you, praying for you, laying hands on you. Like, it, it's difficult. Does God want to be near you? Yes, and it's scary to have God near you because it's better to keep him at a distance because he's God. A book I want you to think about, I'm reading right now myself, is a book called The Discipline of Grace. And it talks about that there is a discipline to grace. That God disciplines his children, which the writer of Hebrews talked about earlier in chapter 12. And there is a discipline to grace that's beautiful. It's where we discipline ourselves to hold on to the grace of God. It's not works-based. It's I so want to hold on to the grace of God. I want to be fully committed to be his disciple and surrender to him. And as I do that, I'm just going to have grace oozing all over and through and out of me. Great book if you're looking for a book to read that'll help you not be afraid. Then he goes on, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus has also suffered outside the gate so he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let them go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Remember, these Hebrews are being disgraced. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. These Hebrews are so depressed that they don't get to go to their church anymore because they've been thrown out. They can't go to temple anymore because they're not allowed to go into the temple. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that thing's dead. All the stuff that goes on in there now means nothing. The foods they eat, the sacrifices they make are all in ignorance and ignoring that Jesus has come and he's the author and perfecter of all those things. Jesus didn't die in the Holy of Holies and call us to the Holy of Holies. You ready for this? He went where we were and died out in public, naked on a cross to say, I'm here for you. You don't need to be a high priest to get in here. I'm it and I'm providing a way for you to meet me. Wow, 
These Hebrews would be so encouraged by that. Another book, I've got some pamphlets back there for you that you can read to help you on this. It's a book called Heaven. And there's a little pamphlet. They're free. Grab one on your way out. As a men's group, we're reading this book, a devotional. It's a little bit longer than this one. But it just talks about what heaven is going to be like. Most Christians have no idea what heaven's going to be like, so they don't know what they're shooting for. They don't understand what... And so they look at the things around them, and all they see is hell everywhere. Instead of clinging to the grace of God and the eternal kingdom that's coming. He goes on and says, Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. The opposite of fear is praise. Let me say that again. The opposite of fear is praise. That when you are going through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil and I will cry out to him. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, in all these relationships, in all this stuff you're going to go through, marriage, leaders, brotherly love, hospitality, and the mess that it all is, he says, look, evangelism's not very hard. What you do in evangelism is you allow Christ through you, he changes you, and you go to him and you offer up praise. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff, you just have to tell him thank you for doing it all. That's grace. It's not I'm going to offer all these sacrifices to try to get in with good, with God. I look at the cross and I go, there's nothing I can do to measure up to that. I just praise you. I thank you. You're everything. I surrender to you. What do you want me to do today? Because I just love you. That's what God wants. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. If we live like that, evangelism would be easy because his praise would be on our lips instead of our griping all the time. Instead of seeing what we're not satisfied and what we don't have and how big the mess of the world is, We'd be like, man, I just know where I'm going. I know that I have Jesus. I know that there's an eternal home. And I'm going to keep praising and saying that until it becomes real in my heart. And my lips are going to say it. And then people start thinking, man, they are weird. Yep, you're going to look weird when you praise God on a regular basis in public. Just as weird as Jesus looked hanging on a cross as the Son of God and the God of creation and the universe. So you won't look any weirder than that. And no weirder when he came back to life and walked around and like walked through walls. A little weird. Don't try to walk through a wall today. That's that Jesus, not you. He goes on and he says this. Do not neglect to do what is good and to share. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. Oh, so all I have to do is praise all the time. Oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. No, no, no. Because if you're praising, then you're going to want other people to declare his praise. And the way you get other people to declare praise is to show them his love and to be generous and to care and to show them grace like you have it. So they can praise. See how that works? And so he says, do what is good. Do what God says is good. This question came up in Matthew chapter 19. Just then someone came up and asked Jesus, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? This guy is afraid that he's going to go to hell. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to know that I'm not going to go to hell? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus said to him, there's only one who is good, God, right? Do you believe I'm God, mister? You're coming and ask me a question. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him. Jesus answered, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews, all those things he just listed? Oh yeah, he did. These simple things. I have kept all these. Bad answer when you're standing before God. Bad answer. To look at God and be like, I'm good. I kept all these. Be like, oh goodness, no. The young man told him, what do I still lack? Okay, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. He did not see that coming. And can I just tell you, we live in a culture that we don't see this coming either. We don't believe that God has the right to say this kind of thing to us because we've got life figured out and we got our budget and we got everything laid out. God has no right to tell me when I've been obedient. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done anything really bad or evil. I've been faithful to the church. I've been faithful to my marriage. God, I don't need to sell everything. You're not asking all those other people to sell everything that haven't been as good as I've been. 
When the young man heard that command, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. He was scared to death to realize that everything he had built was nothing and that Jesus wasn't impressed. But you want to know what Jesus wanted? Like the writer of Hebrews, Jesus wanted this guy's heart. He wanted his heart. He goes on and says again in Hebrews 17, 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. There are two words that we love in the United States of America. Obey and submit. Right? I mean, you put that on your bumper sticker on your car. Everybody's going to wave and be like, right? Obey and submit with a peace sign. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Why do you obey? Because you're trying to get something and when you don't get it, you stop obeying? Or do you obey because God has asked you to do it and you submit because that's what God has asked even when it's not working out well for you? Susan has followed me all over the place. She has submitted to me, sometimes begrudgingly, but almost always has submitted to when, when God has called us and we are going, like she is saying, okay, I'm with you. I'm with stupid. Here we go, right? I'll die with you. We're going to the, like, she lets me fail because she knows. She's like, it's on your head. And she loves me through it to warn me because she cares about me. And it's, I should respond and we should mutually respond to each other so we have joy and profit in our marriage and in our home, which we've done for the most part. See, that's the key. And and what does it mean to obey your leaders? Well, he said before, obey their faith. Look at their faith. It's not that you can't evaluate myself or Jason or, or the other leaders or small group leaders in our church. We should be evaluating one another. We should be rebuking, correcting, and teaching one another. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But then recognize that you're not in the position of leadership. That's not what God's called you to. And so how do then I respond to that? Obey and submit. Unless it's like we're asking you to kill your kid. Like, well, no. Like, don't obey and submit to sin. But most of the, I don't remember ever asking someone to obey or submit to sin in any of my counsel with people. I may not have had all the facts. I may have made a, a judgment call or had to make a hard call, but I don't remember being like, yeah, God says to do these two things as a possibility. You know what? Don't do either of those. Do this sin. It'll be great. He goes on and he says, pray for us. Can I just tell you as your leaders, <laughs> pray for us. I'm just a man. I'm a sinful, broken man. I'm no better than any one of you in this room. I'm no better than any other pastor in this town. Probably worse sometimes. But I cling to the grace of God and the call that he gave me on my life that was confirmed by the body, the church, and confirmed by the elders and others, by the laying on of hands that said, yes, we believe this is what you have and we're going to hold you accountable to it. And I have to keep coming back under that authority. And it's hard because I want to give up sometimes and just quit and do something else. And God reminds me, nope, you're not yours, you're mine. Die some more. Because I'm going to resurrect you anyway. <laughs> so pray for us. For we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything, and especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. This author was separated from the people. And then he says, May the God of peace, who brought you up from the dead, our Lord Jesus, he's already brought you back to life. He's already renewing your heart. The great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will. Not to do what you want, but to do his will, working in us, which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. He comes to the end and he goes back to the beginning of the book. And he says, the reason I'm asking you to do all these things, I've just spent the last couple of chapters, is because you've got to understand that there's a God that's bringing peace. There's a God that has brought you alive because you were dead. There is a shepherd that's walking with you and protecting you and he's covered you and he can equip you to do the good things when all bad things are happening to you. And he's working in you so that you can be pleasing in his sight and be pleasing to the people around you to show them who God is. 
He says, now consider Jesus and consider your fear. Don't be afraid. And he said, brothers, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation for I've written to you briefly. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy was in prison. Faithful Timothy. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. By the way, we're all saints. We're a priesthood of believers. Those who are from Italy greet you. And grace be with all of you. Do you know that God's grace is with you? Do you live in fear or do you live with a boldness to say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man or woman or anyone do to me? Can I just tell you, that message was all the way back thousands of years ago in Psalm. It's repeated in Hebrews and God is trying to tell you and I this morning and in this moment that you can cling to his grace. And if you cling to that, it's going to change you. They're the let us statements. You're going to begin to act differently in relationships. He is going to transform you to be a different person, a new creation that he's creating. And the reason he's doing it is because he wants you to experience more and more of his grace that you don't deserve. And he wants you to be a conduit of grace to the world, truth and grace, his truth and grace to the world. And when we do that, the fear starts to pass away. The fear begins to subside, that we're not afraid anymore because we know that there's nothing that can be done to us. Nothing can take us from our eternal kingdom. Nothing can, if every relationship in our life ends, that one will never end. And I can cling to that with boldness and confidence because that's what he promised, not what I'm feeling. And man, if you are there this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've not surrendered your life to him, can I just tell you, do it. It's, look at what he offers. There's nothing like this in the world. He says, I want to bring you to heaven. I want you to know that there's something more than this messed up world. And I want to invite you into that relationship that will change you and that will change every other relationship. Does it mean it won't be hard? No, he says all the hard things in Hebrews. But it'll be worth it. And for those of us who are believers, I encourage you to look back through this Hebrews 13 passage and the let us statements and ask yourself, what is it that God's trying to kind of pick out and drive home to you this morning? What's he trying to get you to see that you need to change in your life and allow him to work in that process through his grace of changing you that's on that list of things? And just go to him and confess and say, God, change me. If you do that, I promise you, he'll meet you where you're at. And if you do it, if you've committed your life to Jesus or you've got something that you want to commit to him and be accountable to, can I just tell you, why don't you be hospitable and come to one of us and ask us to pray for you? Why don't you go to a brother or sister in Christ and ask for accountability? Why don't you go and say, I've committed my life to Jesus. I never did that before. I've surrendered. Now what? Do it. Do it. And then tell somebody about it. Let the praise be on your lips of what God's shown you and how he wants to change you. Share that with the body. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you that you are asking us to cling to your grace over and over again in this book of Hebrews. These Hebrews that have been doing works their whole life, trying to measure up, going to temple, giving sacrifices, doing all these things, and they've seen you as the Messiah they're done. They've laid down their lives in surrender and now you're teaching them what it looks like to live differently. Lord, that message is no different for them than it is for us. And so this morning, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that are here. I pray that you would allow brotherly love to continue as you have in our church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to honor the relationships of marriage and, and leaders and friendships and hospitality to the brethren. Father, I pray that you would allow us, as this Hebrew passage says, to, to learn to truly trust you and not resurrect old dead works, but to, to cling to your grace. That we truly want you to make us to be like you. Lord, help us, protect us from the lies of the enemy and the fear of the enemy. I pray that we would drop our fears. 
We'd be able to say that you are our helper and we will not be afraid because there is nothing man can do to us because we have a God that says he will be there forever and someday there's going to be a new earth that'll be perfect and everything that was done to us will be undone. And anything we've done to someone else will be undone and that's what grace is. So Father, encourage us this morning as we go into Thanksgiving, help us to give thanks to you. Help us to see what you did, that you came from heaven to earth to give your life to us. Help us to do the same. Help us to give us your praise. Help us to give our praise to you this morning. We ask. Amen.